Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So around a year and a half ago, I got hired as a data analyst at Hopkins. And my team, department, center that I work, what, you made a face. What's wrong? No, I just, it feels like it's been longer than... Oh, I see. <laughs> I mean, I know we've known each other longer than right. when you got the job, but it's just like, wow, only 18 months. Yeah. It's, really? I think so. I'm approaching two years. Like I haven't crossed the two years barrier. I think you're closer to two years than one though. I think you're, anyway. I think that is true. I am closer to two than one, but I definitely haven't crossed two. So slightly less than two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> slightly less than two years. I got hired as a data analyst at Hopkins. Uh, my team department and center that I worked at is all about aging, uh, a lot of dementia care. That was sort of the lipid center. That's their whole focus about aging and dementia care. And it dawned on me that I should probably do an episode about this field because I work for the center for this field. So here we are today. Yeah, we've done enough about my topic area. We should definitely do one for you. Yes. It's great. There's something very interesting about like your field. That's why we keep going back to it. <laughs> and there's interesting about your field too. And actually, this may be getting too far ahead, but increasingly people are starting to think about aging and older adults and dementia in the context of firearm ownership and like having a plan for what happens to people's firearms when they start to decline. That is fascinating. Yeah. So there's some really great work that Dr. Emmy Betts and crew in Colorado are doing. But some of our colleagues, Jan Vernick, and I think Alex McCourt and some others have talked about sort of like, what do we do with firearms when people are aging? Because we see, yeah. oh, a grandparent experiencing dementia, grandkid comes in the door, gets shot by the grandparent. It has happened too many times. Yes. Just in the news the past few weeks, an elderly yep. white man uh, shot a... A black boy. Just, just a, not even doing anything, just knocked on a roundhouse... Yeah, anyway, you know the news. Yes, although maybe less about dementia and more about just fear and racism. (laughs) 100%. But (laughs) the point being, I'm glad we're doing something about this topic. Yeah, aging is one of those fields that really permeates a lot of everything is public health. We've talked about this many times, listeners, and it's one of those fields that really permeates every other field. And aging is a topic that I think over the past few decades has gotten politically polarized in that there is tension between generations. There's always tension between generations, MJ. You just just are now (laughs) aware enough to realize, but there's always been tension. There's always been tensions between generations, but I feel like in recent years, because thanks to the media and internet culture, uh, that tension has gotten heightened. And I remember OK Boomer uh, a few years ago, and honestly still today. But yeah, what are your takes on this tension regarding older people in this country? I think it is inherently like human nature for older people to sort of look with disdain sometimes, or at least like confusion at younger generations. (laughs) And some of it Mm -hmm. exactly absolutely has to do with technology. So like sometimes I'll do something on my phone and my mother-in-law will be sitting next to me and she's like, well, how did you do that so fast? Or what are you doing? Or why are you doing that? And she just like her mind is blown Because like, you know, I've had a cell phone since I was 17. Now my kids only know smartphones like they've never saw. They don't even know the normal phones. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think that definitely contributes to part of it. But I also think that as we get older, we have nostalgia for what we tend to look back on with rose colored glasses. Like, oh, you know, I say all the time when I was a kid. Like we didn't get to sit around at home and watch TV or there there wasn't really the internet 
any of that kind of stuff, we would be kicked out of the house <laughs> and we would come home when the streetlights came on. Yep. And I saw something the other day. It was like, oh, this like more evidence that parents in the 80s did not give a f- like that was the, the name of it. This adult was talking about how when he was a kid, he fell and broke his arm and he was like crying in pain. His arm was broken. He was a little kid. But his mom like grabbed him, shoved his arm in the coat, like zipped his coat up and like threw him in the car. She's like, I don't got time for this. Like get in the car. I was just like, I thought that would be traumatizing. (laughs) Well, yes, that was maybe a very aggressive example, but it is not the same kind of helicopter or lawnmower parenting that we have now where our children don't get any kind of difficulty in their life. And then we wonder why we've created anxious young people as adults who have so much anxiety because they never had to deal with any kind of challenge when they were younger. Um, I'm painting with broad brushstrokes. I recognize that. But I also think that there's a tendency because of that, like looking back fondly Mm -hmm. and intentionally or otherwise ignoring the bad parts of that time. Yes, I think that's a big part. That's a real challenge. But the point being, as I get older, I also sort of, I see myself now reflecting back and not, I am very mindful when this happens. I'm not like, oh, wouldn't it be so great to go back in time, this, that, and the other? Because as a woman, (laughs) I certainly faced a lot of challenges and I'm sure, you know, minoritized communities also face those challenges. But I do see myself sometimes like looking back more fondly on certain experiences or certain time periods. And I have to be like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Was it really that great when I did this? Like, was it really that great when I was a teenage girl to have this like crusty old soccer coach who was a little bit weird? And maybe not. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it was okay to feel uncomfortable in that time. And maybe, you know, whatever. Anyway, that's my very long reflection. That might set the record for the longest tangent we've had on the show. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I, do you really think that was the longest one I've ever done? If I kept it all in, it would be. Well, to be fair, a lot of my tangents are really off base. Like <laughs> That's true. I, I cut go out like a lot. way, way, way off. At least this one was entirely related to the topic at hand. It is. And <laughs> like you said, it's there's always been tension, but I feel like with technology, with the internet and media and a political landscape, that tension has definitely gotten to a place where it's never been before. And we need to be, I guess I need to be more careful about what I say for the rest of this episode. But I think an important point to say is that like we talked about in the rural health episode, this population, this aged population, I think that's the politically correct term now that we're using the aged population, is not a monolith. I want to acknowledge that and I want listeners to acknowledge that this episode won't focus on the political composition of that group but about that group as a whole in relation to this country. And to do that, we have to understand what that group is first. So turns out there's not a definitive way to demarcate what is considered old. I mean, like we often measure things in terms of 65 and above because that is the quote unquote retirement age. But there's really no reason why 65 is a cutoff. And honestly, to someone like a geriatrician, 65 might be young for their patient population because they are handling everyone uh, over 65. So turns out there's actually not like a good way, like there's like a convention, but there's really no good way to designate like what is considered the age population. Right. And I think comorbidities and chronic health conditions contribute to that too. So you might have somebody who is 60, but has chronic health conditions and has mobility and other issues that might make them seem older than they are. And then you have folks like my father-in-law who just turned 80 
who like if you looked at him you'd be like that dude's 60 that that dude is 60 he's out running his dog he does agility with his giant bernese mountain dog like running around the field climbing up trees james says he's got a peter pan complex happening Mm -hmm. but you would not know that this dude is 80 if you did not have a conversation with him and he's like oh by the way i'm 80 (laughs) so yeah that's what i mean So i think there's yeah it's hard to sort of define what it means you're right a lot of our cutoffs are convention like it's one of those things that it's just numbers at the end of the day and grouping is essentially arbitrary like we put the groups on this ourselves well i also think it has to do with life expectancy yeah so when we started when we put social security when we put medicare into place at with you know kicking in in 62 or 65 yeah something like that people were not expected to live until yeah 80 right like oh you retire at 60 62 65 and you know you live five or ten years and then (laughs) right so our health advances quality of food water have extended our life expectancy which makes it again harder to make this a clear definition yeah and as we know because this is everything is public health people's experience with aging very drastically differently depending on a lot of factors gender race socioeconomic status um, which we'll get into but one way that we can look at how our aging population is relative to our society holistically is to look at a demographic breakdown i.e the population pyramid yes i love population pyramids (laughs) so these are ways to conceptualize data and help make comparisons And so you might have the youngest people on the bottom, the oldest people on the top, and you have sort of a left and a right side of a pyramid. Usually it's a triangle, but, you know, we're thinking of it as a as a pyramid. But so it might be by sex. It might be by race, ethnicity, right? You might see male, female or white Americans, black Americans. And really, it helps you to see where are the generation bands? What are the distributions of age? And generally, we see more younger people. So it's a pyramid because there are more younger people at the bottom. And then as we get to the older adults, they um, it's a smaller proportion up at the top. The other thing, this is not exactly a population pyramid, but we use this to conceptualize like differences in injury outcomes or health outcomes also. So rather than looking at the population distribution in that, in that pyramid scheme, we'll have it set up, not scheme, pyramid... <laughs> shape (laughs) have you been influenced by the mlm people (laughs) we will sometimes look at like let's say we look at black americans and white americans and we're looking at firearm homicide for example and the risk by age group and it will be a similar setup as the population pyramid but it demonstrates the the elevated risk among a particular group yeah it's just a tool it's a cool tool i love it. often used for demographics but you could use it for anything um and oftentimes these pyramids are presented to describe the trajectory of a population which is what it's used for mostly comparing different countries like the population trajectories of different countries and this is where we get into the fun part of the population pyramid the shapes yay (laughs) although i would say maybe it's different i wouldn't necessarily conceptualize them as different shapes different ways to draw a pyramid or a triangle like yeah so rather than being abstract let's get specific right so if you think of it like a traditional triangle a traditional pyramid very wide on the bottom teeny tiny pointy on the top that means that the the population is growing mm-hmm. right we want to see more young people who are then sort of 
growing up and then they're contributing. And then when we have a small proportion of older people at the top who might need more social services, people can't see, but I'm making a pyramid triangle over my head. (laughs) You're literally making a pyramid. Yeah. Sometimes though, we do not have enough young people. Maybe the birth rates are slowing. And then we see maybe less of a triangle, less of a pyramid, and maybe more like a rectangle or more like a square, which would be really bad, where we do not have enough young people joining society, enough young people be like, we're cloning them. That was a very weird way to say that. Yeah. We don't have enough. The birth rate is too slow. And so we, we have slow growth of our population. And so people are aging, but we are not having enough new babies being born. Worst case scenario is an inverted triangle inverted pyramid, hopefully not very pointy at the bottom, but less wide at the bottom and and wider at the top. And this means that the population is shrinking. There are the birth rate is negative. Like we don't have it. We're not having enough babies in the country to then replace or sort of contribute to the growth. And that can be very challenging because then you have more older people who might need care and supportive services and resources and not enough young people paying into the system through taxes to then provide support to those folks. And this is a big issue we see, uh, particularly in Japan, South Korea, some of the East Asian countries, they're really struggling with a declining birth rate and having a really top-heavy uh, population pyramid. And those are the three basic shapes. But as you said, this is just a tool and you, there are tons of other different shapes that you can look at. I'll just really qu- point out one thing. So imagine a pointy pyramid but the base is really, really wide and it just gets super pointy like a space needle, uh, that means people are dying young. If you have a pyramid shape like that, they're not making past 30 or something. That's why the needle is so pointy. Again, it's an audio format, so it's really hard to describe something visual via an audio format. Maybe we can link in the show notes like to some examples yeah, of... Uh, for sure. But that's the general tool that people use to describe population trajectory. And for America specifically, some stats, 16.9%, I'm just going to say 17% of the US population or around 56 to 57 million people are considered age, i.e. older than 65. Again, a very arbitrary cutoff, but it's the cutoff that's most commonly used. So we're going to use it. Um, Slightly more female, and actually not slightly, a lot more female than male, uh, 55.4 to 44.6. A lot of it, I think, is life expectancy differences between females and males. A lot of that because male takes a lot of risk-seeking behaviors, and that's probably why. Well, and also thinking about you know the public health figures episode we were talking about with Dr. Alice Hamilton, the kinds of occupational exposures men in the workplace might have had, which could be contributing to a shorter life expectancy. Yeah, for sure. And people being too embarrassed to go to the doctor and get physicals and get oh, their prostates checked issue. and get an, a colonoscopy. Go to the doctor, get a checkup, get your cholesterol checked. Like, go now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go right now. Pause this episode. You can download this yeah. episode and <laughs> listen to it on the way there. In terms of uh, racial breakdowns, at least for right now in America, most people in the aged population are white. 75% categorized as white, although this group is also declining the fastest. So I know we're not going to talk about the sort of political composition of this group, but I would just as a thought experiment... <laughs> like our listeners to consider if we're thinking about the largest proportion of our older adults who tend to be registered voters, the folks who tend to show up, tend to vote, tend to contact their politicians, are white Americans who are older. Most folks get slightly more conservative as they get older, what implications that might have for the political direction of our country, which is why everybody needs to register and vote. Vote, vote, vote. Yes. We have a slightly shrinking population, so not a top-heavy pyramid, but like a 
oblong or wait, wait, semi-rectangular more um polygon is that yeah like we're not like a fully shrinking pyramid but we're definitely not like a classic nice uh, big base at the bottom tiny chunk on the top we are a shrinking population albeit not as bad as some other nations half of the age population lives in eight states florida pennsylvania new york ohio illinois michigan california and texas I'm surprised Arizona's not on that list. Yeah. So this is skewed. This is not by state capita. This is just total half uh, lives in these eight states. So the fact that California, Texas, and Florida is on there, I feel like that's super weighted because they're just a big state. Sure. Yeah. I just know. So as a an original West Coaster, you as well, Yay, like West the, Coast, the snowbirds, the folks on the East Coast who might go to Florida and or Texas on the West Coast, a lot of folks would go to Arizona, at least when I was younger. So, yeah. But I hear you on the population. Yeah. Almost 55 aged person per 100 working age person. So this is how they calculate. I forgot the term, but basically when you think about social securities, when you think about the tax base to support our older population, this ratio is what they use to determine uh, whether we're in trouble or not. We are in trouble. Uh, 55 aged person per 100 working age person, meaning it's over half. And then one in six of this age population receives needs-based assistance even before the pandemic. So needs-based assistance, as we discussed in our welfare episode, Medicaid, not Social Security, SSI, which is supplemental service income, something. (laughs) Anyway, one in six receives some sort of need-based assistance even before the pandemic. Supplemental security income. Thank you for correcting me. Supplemental security income. But, you know, some sort of need-based stuff. So the title of this episode I'm getting into now. So the general impression of old people in this country is that they historically they have participated in the political process the most. A lot of politics and a lot of politicians cater to them. They have a lot of resources. As I was alluding to earlier. Yeah. In fact, the country's only universal in quotes healthcare is for the age, Medicare. For people 65 and older, the biggest chunk of our healthcare spending goes to them. And we have things like Social Security, supplemental security income. A lot of our politicians are older than 65 years old themselves. So in general, the impression is that this population is well taken care of. Yeah, I can see how that can be the impression. And in many circumstances, that that might be the case, right? Sure. Particularly based on differences in sex and race, ethnicity, But I think that there can be more done for our entire population. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in particular, and I know this because I used to work in this industry. If you remember, I was a nurse's aide in a nursing home for a little while before I worked in a hospital. And we regularly heard about patients who would spend down into Medicaid. Yes. So they would have money. They had retirement. They had Medicare. Yeah. But there was only a certain amount of nursing home days that Medicare would cover. So if somebody needed year-round skilled nursing care and they were in a nursing home, then they would have to spend down all of their money to then qualify for Medicaid yeah. to then have more coverage available for skilled nursing. And so there, there's certainly still ways that we could do more to support this population. And not everybody retires at 65. So, you know, not everybody is capable of working. And, and yes, there are other supportive services that people might be able to access. But I would not be surprised if people said that we could do more for our older populations. And people do say that we could do more. According to the Pew Opinion Survey, and again, this is conducted by the Pew Research Center, uh, 65% thinks the federal government does not provide enough help to older people. Democrats, 
and this is interesting, I won't comment too much on this, Democrats are more likely than Republicans to say that the federal government does not provide enough help for the elderly. And that is all I'm going to say. Uh (laughs) Well, so I was doing Hill visits last month when the debt ceiling was being debated and passing legislation to raise the debt limit and pass the budget for appropriations, all that kind of stuff. And hearing the different sides of the political spectrum, these different elected officials talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, if we pass this thing that they want to do in the House, (laughs) then 300,000 kids are going to lose health insurance. 200,000 people are going to lose supplemental nutrition assistance programs, all these things, because they want to balance a budget and not have billionaires pay their fair share to reduce the deficit. And so it's unsurprising to me, given what I have just saw on the Hill, Republicans think that we do enough um, because, you know, they have donors and constituents and (sighs) folks who might be articulating those ideas Mm -hmm. to them that are maybe not consistent with reality land. And that's all we're going to say about this topic. So I added that part in and the, the title of this episode is called do we actually care about old people is because impression and reality are often not congruent with each other. And this is a public health issue because like we said, our aging population is increasing. We have a shrinking population base. Taking care of our age population is everyone's problem. And this is an issue that different people face different types of challenges. And one of the most obvious types of difference is income is your social economic standing like you might think oh yeah we have medicare we have th- th- we have like nursing homes long-term care and services are very expensive like nursing home hospitals is very expensive do you think everyone in this country can retire with like a full juicy savings retirement account no do you think everyone in this country will have uh employers nice enough to supplement their medicare once they go into retirement some companies do that not every company uh actually i would say more companies don't do that than do. And we need to think about this as an intersectionality issue. It's not just that, oh, yeah, we have Medicare. We're going to be fine. No, it's very expensive. Race plays a big part into it. Gender plays a big part into it. And that's why this is a public health issue. I don't remember if we talked about this on a previous episode, but Washington state passed a law that you have to purchase long-term care insurance. Did we talk about this before? Mm -hmm. But it was a while ago. So just say it again. Yeah. Yeah, So my sister is employed, she's working and everyone in the state who was working was given until a certain point to purchase a plan that they wanted to purchase. Otherwise the state was going to just automatically like garnish their wages. Well, tax them maybe is a better way to say it (laughs) essentially like they were going to be forced to pay into the state's plan if they didn't opt into some other plan and then sort of show proof of that because the state recognizes that individuals spend down into medicaid and then the state's medicaid dollars are going to a lot of long-term nursing care as opposed to maybe young folks who might need preventive services or any of that kind of stuff so it was an interesting decision in the state to put that in place and you know it will be a while i think before anyone sort of really sees what the benefits are, but sort of leveraging the insurance market, the risk pool for distributing resources. Because, you know, there are some people who are going to pay into that who never need long-term nursing either. 
they die from a heart attack or, you know, too young or they... A bunch of other reasons. Yeah. yeah, we don't need to delve into all of them. But like all other insurances or most other insurances, you pay into something to share the risk across a group of people and some people are going to use it and some people aren't. That's the whole point of insurance. Right. Yeah. The other thing we haven't really talked about, you know, we've been talking about the financial resources, right? Do you have insurance to cover this? Do you have Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera? But that totally ignores the burden that aging populations can place on family members. So the other thing I'll share a reflection from my time working in a nursing home was we would regularly have people come in for a couple of days, a few times a year for respite care, meaning it was respite for the caregiver. So a husband may put the wife in for a few days or children may put their parents in for a few days of care so that they could travel or they could take a break, whatever it was. But it is it is a real burden. And I know that's a topic area that your team focuses on, sort of caregiver burden. And it's not just financially, right? It's mental stress, health stress, yeah, emotional. Yeah. And well, the general theme that I want to get the point across is that our social support system for this population is not as good as what some people might perceive or imagine. There is a huge isolation issue, like old people dying alone, and that's obviously very taxing. 85 plus has the highest suicide rates, like people older than 85, they have the highest suicide rate per capita, capita, person. And nursing home and hospice issues, uh, John Oliver did a whole episode about the lack of regulation in this industry and potential harms that some of these less uh, well-meaning nursing home and hospice cares are doing to this population. Medicare is not always enough. And uh, Medicare doesn't kick in until you're 65. So like you said, this is not a monolith. What if you need care prior to 65? And as the population gets older, and this is a big part of the center I'm working at is focusing, issues are going to get more sophisticated and complicated, right? Dementia care is going to get sophisticated and complicated as people are aging into that age group uh, and more people are in that age group. Other things that require long-term care and support and services, those are all things that not just Medicare, but Medicaid is paying a lot of money for. And a bunch of other things, right? I think the general point is that, yes, we do a lot, but is nowhere near enough to what we ideally want to be in. And a lot of that is compounded by income levels, race, gender, et cetera. But I think there are some states that are really trying to be at the forefront. So I think prior to this past fall, I would not have necessarily thought that this was a very progressive state, but New Mexico is actually very progressive. They are providing a bunch of services to their residents with a balanced budget. And I think this comes back to the principle that we've talked about a whole bunch of times. We are already spending money on particular issues to address things after they have developed, after they have devolved, after we have had some issue happen. But if we can spend those dollars on the front end, we are likely to spend less money and take care of more people. So they're working on universal pre-K, they're working on parental leave, all of these things. And honestly, I heard the governor of New Mexico speak and I was like, sign me up, like get me a job at a university in New Mexico right now. Let's go. That sounds fantastic. But I think it's like there are models where we can do better for our people if we choose to do that and we prioritize our people over companies that might be keeping us elected. And I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Exactly.
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. The rest of this mini-series will explore the other components of our Care for the Aged system, including Medicare and other things. Stay tuned. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Instagram and Mastodon at Everything is Public Health. We are on Twitter at Everything is PH. And you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. I'm also posting frequently on Mastodon. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.